0: Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the coalition's managing editor. And today, renowned professor of animal science and best selling author Temple Grandin has written a new book on visual thinking. And I'm an extreme visual
1: thinker. Everything I think about is a picture which made me very good at working with animals, also really good at designing mechanical devices.
0: One rural community in Colorado brings broadband to its residents. You know, your kids can't go home from
2: school and do their work from home if there isn't adequate broadband, and we can't do telemedicine, and, and you can't even work remotely if there's not adequate broadband.
0: A lawsuit against the state of Utah is challenging unlimited year-round hunting of
3: mountain lions. The result is of a lot more young juvenile and mountain lions roaming the landscape, and they're the ones that actually cause most of the conflict.
0: While in Colorado, a ban on big cat trophy hunting could be on the state ballot in 2024. There's a tremendous gulf, right, between an ethical
4: hunter who's on the ground working their butt off to get meat on the table for their family, and someone that's out using a pack of dogs, wearing GPS collars, chasing them outland into a
0: tree, and then shooting it from below, maybe even with a crossbow. From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. Temple Grandin is an autism advocate, a professor of animal science at Colorado State University, and a best-selling author. Her latest book is Visual Thinking, the hidden gifts of people who think in pictures, patterns, and abstractions. She spoke to KGNU's Sam Fuqua.
5: Tell us why you wrote the book Visual Thinking.
1: Right before COVID hit, I went on a trip where I went to a st- two state-of-the-art pork processing plants, a chicken plant, and the Steve Jobs Theater. And most of the equipment for the chicken plant was imported from Holland, and the glass walls from the, from the Steve Jobs Theater were um, made in uh, Italy and Germany. And, and I'm an extreme visual thinker. Everything I think about is a picture, which made me very good at working with animals, also really good at designing mechanical devices. And I worked with a lot of very skilled metal workers who had multiple patents. Their stuff is still being used all, all throughout the beef industry. But those people are retiring now and not getting replaced. And one of the problems is, is that none of us can do algebra. There's kind of three ways that people think. There's object visualizers like me who think in photorealistic pictures we have a very difficult time with abstract math, but we're real good with mechanical things. Then there are the um, visual-spatial thinkers, who are the mathematicians. They think in patterns instead of pictures. And then there's word thinkers. And most people are mixtures of the three kinds of thinking. The object visualizer, like me, thinks in pictures, the mathematician who thinks in patterns, and the word thinker who thinks in words. And we need all the different kinds of minds. They bring different skills into the job. Like, for example, on a food processing plant, my kind of mind designs all the mechanical equipment, think packaging equipment, and the more mathematical mind makes sure the roof is not going to fall in and designs the boilers and the refrigeration because that requires a lot more mathematics. So we need the different kinds of thinkers. And I'm getting very, very concerned about skill loss.
5: You know, when you talked about the the mathematical thinker who thinks in terms of patterns. I thought of when I play music. I think that way as well. That's a musical way of thinking. I guess is that right?
1: Well, yes, it is. Um, music and math go together. In fact, I was watching that Oppenheimer movie, and they talked about equations almost like, almost like being like music. You know, math. I talked to some other mathematicians, and they just they just see the patterns in the equations, and it is like music. Music and math go together, and then art. And mechanics go together. I know that sounds kind of weird, but that's what I found. Art and mechanics also go together. And the people I worked with, the, for example, like in the Montford Fab Shop, they could just see how to invent mechanical devices. It's a different kind of thinking than mathematical thinking. And I gave a, did a book signing for visual thinking when it first came out at a school. And the principal at that school didn't even know that my kind of thinking existed. He thought everything was mathematical and verbal.
5: How are we doing in understanding, accommodating, uh, teaching kids who may be visual thinkers?
1: Well, one of the things we need to be doing is putting all the hands-on classes back in. Because most of the people I've worked with um, that built equipment for me and also designed mechanical things, they maybe took a welding class in high school, and that's how they got their business started. And we need to be putting in sewing, cooking, woodworking, art, music, because how can kids find out what they're good at if they're not exposed to it? I was exposed to musical instruments. I couldn't figure out how to play them. But another kid's going to just pick right up on that. And it depends upon the the, the, uh, school board, and it depends upon the state and the county and all kinds of other stuff. But in some areas, um, kids are growing up today never doing any hands-on things. They don't know how to use a tape measure. And, and so a visual thinker doesn't get the opportunity to develop their skills if there are no hands-on classes.
5: And how are we doing in accommodating neurodivergent students in our public schools? Well, uh,
1: well, a lot of the people I worked with, some of the best machinery designers I worked with, and also drafting technicians who laid out entire factories, about 20% of them were either autistic, dyslexic, or ADHD, undiagnosed. I worked with one guy who has a whole pile of paths, and he was very autistic, but not diagnosed, and he was a little bit older than I am.
5: In your book, you connect some of what you've just been talking about with disaster response and a future where uh, our infrastructure will be at risk, will be destroyed in some cases through extreme weather events. Can you help uh, our listeners make that connection between visual thinking and the need to maintain and potentially uh, repair major infrastructure as we face a world uh, where the climate is changing?
1: You're going to need the visual thinkers to keep major infrastructure like water systems and power plants working. There's a whole chapter in visual thinking on disasters. And I carefully researched Fukushima, the nuclear power plant meltdown, and the Mathematicians did a great job of making it earthquake-proof. It shook and it shook and it shook and it shook. shook. But then when the tsunami waves came over the seawall, the electric emergency cooling pump drowned because it was not protected by watertight doors. See, my kind of mind sees that risk. I see the water flooding the site. I know exactly what's going to happen. Engineers calculate risk. Visual thinkers see risk. That's the difference. And I know enough about construction and how things are built that you flood that site, The basement's going to get flooded, and an electric pump that you really need is not going to work. It's a different way of problem solving. I see the risk. And one of my big concerns right now with artificial intelligence coming in is we need to protect major infrastructure from hacking. And the best way to do that is old-fashioned electromechanical controls, like, for example, big pumps at the waterworks. They can be severely damaged if they run dry. So if the AI system tells them to run dry, I'm going to have a flow meter inside the pipe, and if that stops turning, it shuts down. It's electromechanical. It's not even electronics. It can't be hacked. We have to protect expensive, difficult-to-replace uh, infrastructure with non-hackable, old-fashioned controls that will shut them down if it gets too hot, spins too fast, or has too much pressure. Old-fashioned controls just shut her down. When companies have been hacked... Um, I don't think I'll, I don't want to name any any companies, but there's been companies that have been hacked, and, and the hackers got in, and ransomed their logistics software for you know trucking. And I asked one of these companies, did you ever think about them damaging your refrigeration system? That's a lot more important than trucking is. It had not crossed their mind. And those things are controlled with a thing of programmable logic controllers and other types of controllers that are very hackable, those systems need to be protected. First of all, that controller needs to be completely isolated from the Internet or any other external computer system. And it also has some electromechanical devices that if the system gets in a dangerous state, such as too much pressure, it shuts down. But old-fashioned, 50 style electromechanical controls have shut it down.
5: Author Temple Grandin discussing some of the content in her new book, Visual Thinking, The Hidden Gifts of People Who Think in Pictures, Patterns and Abstractions. Autism advocate, scientist and best-selling author Temple Grandin.
0: Thanks to KGNU's Sam Fuqua for that report. Accessing broadband in the most rural parts of the Rocky Mountain West can be a challenge. The cost, the geography... And the lack of infrastructure can leave many communities without this necessary utility. Laura Palmisano of KVNF reports on how the only town in the most remote county in the lower 48 states is now getting high-speed fibre internet. To get fibre optic cable from Gunnison
6: to Lake City over rough mountain terrain would cost a lot of money. Money tiny Hinsdale County doesn't have. However, it turns out fibre was already in place. Hinsdale County Commissioner Greg Levine says it's been here for decades.
7: It was installed by CenturyLink years and years ago, and so the fiber was brought to the town, to the CenturyLink building, but CenturyLink never built out beyond that.
6: He says the remote county isn't a profitable investment for the telecommunications giant.
7: CenturyLink doesn't see us as a viable market in which to provide that service to. We are a poor market. We're not attractive. You know, less than 800 residents in the county.
6: Region 10, an association of local governments, serves six counties on the western slope, including Hinsdale. The organization is working on a regional effort to improve broadband infrastructure. So far, it's been able to do so in 14 communities like Delta, Montrose, Gunnison, and Telluride. Michelle Haynes is the executive director of the organization. She says businesses in rural communities face operational challenges without high-speed internet. However, it was during COVID that the broader community impact really came to light.
2: You know, your kids can't go home from school and do their work from home if there isn't adequate broadband and we can't do telemedicine and and you can't even work remotely if there's not adequate broadband.
6: Haynes says the goal is to connect communities to this regional network.
2: And set up a meet-me point or a neutral location that go by different terms, but a place where we can bring that line into the community and work with private providers to be able to take that service out to the homes and the businesses.
6: Region 10 is helping Hensdale County with its Middle Mile project. That means extending the internet backbone so it connects internet service providers to end users. The organization secured agreements to connect Lake City to its network in Gunnison and connect fiber to anchor institutions such as the school, courthouse, and medical center. It was awarded a $300,000 energy and mineral impact assistance grant from the Colorado Department of Local Affairs for the project. Haynes says the state recognizes that former mining towns like Lake City need help with infrastructure projects.
2: They've taken some of the energy mineral impact funds and recognizing that these communities are often no longer mining for coal or, or mining in general or, you know, have power plants, um, which was a big source of income before. So they've taken some funding from that fund to invest into these middle mile projects.
6: The grant requires a 50 50 match. Hinsdale County and the town of Lake City each put up $100,000 of American Recovery Act funds towards the project. The Gunnison County Electric Association also ponied up $100,000, knowing it could get fiber to the substation in town. Work is underway in Lake City to complete the middle mile. Visionary Broadband is installing fiber-optic cable over power lines or underground. Dave Roberts is the town mayor.
3: High-speed internet has been something that's been lacking for many years. It's been frustrating for the local residents. No reliability.
6: Residents complain about internet connectivity, speed, and affordability. So Roberts is happy to see progress towards better broadband in Lake City.
3: Something that's been needed for a long time. Still not in place, but we're looking forward to it. And I think it'll play a, a big role in the
7: future of our town.
6: However, not everyone in Hinsdale County will have access to high speed fiber internet. Again, Commissioner Greg Levine.
7: Initial build out is limited to what I would call the boundaries of the town. It goes through Wade's addition, goes to the water tower, and then as far north as Roan Bridge. But it does not cover all the residents by long shot. We will have hundreds of people that are still needing those services.
6: He says after the Middle Mile project is finished, the county plans to go after additional funding to continue broadband expansion. Hinsdale County is hoping to get another slice of the more than $1.2 billion in federal funds the state received to improve high-speed Internet access. Commissioner Levine says adequate broadband is an essential
7: service. Broadband Internet is now a utility, just like electric. And so it becomes kind of like a right for people. They need it.
6: The Middle Mile project is set to wrap up this fall. Once complete, high-speed fibre internet will soon become available for a majority of residents and businesses in town. Reporting from
0: Lake City, I'm Laura Palmasano. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. Next, we take a look at how two neighboring Rocky Mountain states are dealing with the hunting of big cats. In Colorado, wildlife advocates are proposing a ballot measure for the 2024 election that would ban mountain lion and bobcat hunting. Meanwhile, a lawsuit against the state of Utah is challenging a new law that allows unlimited year-round hunting of mountain lions. KZMU's Emily Arnson has more.
8: Legislators proposed the bill this spring arguing that mountain lion sightings were up across the state. But wildlife biologists say that actually, the mountain lion population has been declining in the past decade. Kirk Robinson is the executive director of the Western Wildlife Conservancy, one of two plaintiffs in the lawsuit.
3: No science was consulted. The only justification offered for this, well, we've heard reports of more frequent sightings of mountain lions, which may be true, but, you know, there are more people in the state than ever before, and more of them visiting uh, mountain lion habitat on hikes, picnics, etc.
8: The original bill had nothing to do with mountain lion hunting. It mostly suggested small tweaks to wildlife management, and when Robinson first reviewed it, he said he gave the bill a passing mark. But a few days before the end of the legislative session in March, a line was added that would authorize mountain lion hunting year-round with essentially no regulations.
3: This bill turned out to be a Trojan horse. It was done sneakily. It was designed to prohibit public scrutiny.
8: Robinson says there's evidence this law will actually do the opposite of what it intends to do. Instead of decreasing mountain lion sightings in urban areas, it could actually increase their presence.
3: There have been recent studies that show that when you kill a lot of mountain lions, the result is of a lot more young, juvenile and mountain lions roaming the landscape. And they're the ones that actually cause most of the conflict. This has been reported over and over. They're undisciplined, they're not good hunters, they roam far and wide, they get into people's yards, they kill pets, they scare people, they prey on sheep.
8: The lawsuit claims that with this new legislation, the state is in violation of its own laws.
3: In 2021, a new amendment to the Utah State Constitution became effective. It's called the Utah Right to Hunt and Fish Act. It's to support management and conservation of wildlife, all to protect the future of hunting in Utah. So my question is, how does HB 469 contribute to the conservation of Utah mount lions
8: The Division of Wildlife Resources is listed as a defendant in the case. In its official statement about the litigation, the DWR said, Our biologists are monitoring harvest rates under the new regulations to determine the effects of this new hunting strategy. If it is determined that additional regulations are needed, those recommendations would be proposed and would be open to public comment.
3: What a lot of Utahs don't understand is how political wildlife management is, you'd think maybe, well, the Division of Wildlife Resources has people trained in sciences and they do what the science does. That is not true. They use science, but they have their own goals. And those goals are set by the politicians who control the purse strings. And a lot of the legislators in Utah, most of them, in fact, are from rural areas where they continue to believe the old myth that predators are a bane.
8: The best time to hunt mountain lions is usually in the winter. Since the new law went into effect in May, biologists don't have a good sense yet how the new rules will affect the harvest rate this year. For KZMU, I'm Emily Ernson.
0: A ban on big cat trophy hunting in Colorado could be on the state ballot next year. The group CATS, which stands for Cats Aren't Trophies, is behind a campaign to collect enough signatures to put the issue to voters. KDNK's Amy Haddon Marsh spoke with Samantha Brugger, CAT's campaign manager, and also with Julie Marshall of Animal Wellness Action. That's one of the groups involved in the campaign.
9: There's about 40 of us in CATS, and we're from all across the state, and it includes sanctuary owners, rehabbers, hunters. They like to call themselves fair chase, ethical hunters, mostly big game deer and elk. We also have uh, fly fishermen, and gosh, we have ecotourism owners. It's just a very broad coalition. And some of us participated in, and some of us watched from the sidelines, really strong, uh, reasonable efforts to end trophy hunting of mountain lions and fur trapping of bobcats in Colorado. First, we had about 208,000 Colorado citizens sign a petition to end bobcat trapping for fur, which uh, was heard before our Wildlife Commission, which are politically appointed leaders who make policy for wildlife in Colorado. When was that? 2019, it says with a standing room only crowd, Uh, the commission unanimously rejected a proposal to ban commercial and recreational hunting and trapping of bobcats. And then the other issue uh, shortly after that, most recently um, was a bill in the legislature in Colorado. And um, that went to, it did not have a robust debate. It went to the um, uh, agriculture committee where all predator related bills go. And that body is uh, is uh, politicians who have been historically unfriendly to predators. And I know that the big money uh, special interest trophy hunting groups, um, there's been reporting on this in the Colorado Sun. um, Within a week when that bill landed, hit and became public, 20,000 emails from those outside big money groups just flooded the lawmakers and they dropped off the bill and it just swiftly died. So we've just been super frustrated by what we know is something color by the polls that show that Coloradans do not support the inhumane, um, cruel, unethical, and sporting acts um, of trophy hunting mountain lions and fur trapping bobcats in Colorado, and and we feel like it's uh it's the smart choice to take it to the voters. And we've done this before in um, in uh, 92, we had a ban on the spring bear hunt in Colorado. And just like this measure, it, that ended uh, using hounds to chase bears through the forest to kill them. And in the springtime, when they had cubs and to use bait to lure them in. So we feel like, uh, you know, when, when special interests are take, have outsized influence over unethical policies, it's absolutely fair for the voters of Coloradans to have their voice heard. The
2: 1992 spring bear hunt, was that a ballot issue
9: too Yes. And did it yes. pass? Yes, it did. It passed overwhelmingly by 70% of the voters in Colorado. And uh, many fair chase ethical hunters were behind that measure, just like they are for this one, too. And and let me just point out that this is by no means an anti-hunting effort. It would be really disingenuous for anyone in the opposition to call it that.
2: Well, and the NRA has already accused the coalition, the Alliance, of being anti-hunters i mean that's a a headline on an article
4: sam i think that that speaks to the uphill battle that you mentioned earlier where unfortunately these institutions that manage our state's wildlife they weren't created for non-consumptive users right they were created for people that want to kill wildlife so to push reform or progress through these institutions it's always an uphill battle And these institutions are also backed by big-money, out-of-state special interests that often receive grants or funding from hunting organizations and hunting clubs. So as soon as you look at any portion of hunting, these groups all align together and really push messaging out and rhetoric out to say that we are anti-hunting or we're animal welfare extremists and They'll use that actually to fundraise on, and it's very misleading to the Colorado voter because they're hearing, oh, all hunting is in jeopardy, when in reality, we have two hunting spokespeople. We support ethical hunting. We just don't think that you should be able to trophy hunt mountain lions and trap bobcats, right? That's pretty inhumane, and there's a big distinction between that and subsistence-based deer and elk hunting. Can you talk about those differences as well as you know what's ethical hunting? For me what i look to is that it's someone whose primary purpose is hunting to put food on the table and that's their main goal of their hunt is really to bring something home to feed their family and and it's fair chase you know by all means too you know that it's people that are actually you know working the woods and out there and working hard to gain that meat for their families the difference between that and what is happening with mountain lions and bobcats is tremendous. What we see with mountain lions is that the goal is to get the biggest tom you can find, the biggest mountain lion you can find, and that guides really play that up a lot too as they're trying to sell hunting guided packages and excursions. And so the primary purpose within those hunts that we would call trophy hunting is really to get the biggest trophy and that meat becomes a convenient excuse to legitimize their activities. And that's not the primary goal of of that kind of hunt. And with bobcats, they don't even have to take the meat. That's for pelts only. That's for fur to sell abroad to foreign markets abroad and and to commercialize. And for some reason, trapping was exempted even from the North American model, where we can say trapping is, is fair to utilize fur. And it's absolutely not. It's pretty cruel. And even in Colorado, you can bludgeon a bobcat after you've caught in a trap to preserve its pelt. I think that these kinds of practices are barbaric, they're inhumane, and there's a tremendous gulf, right, between an ethical hunter who's on the ground working their butt off to get meat on the table for their family, and someone that's out using a pack of dogs, wearing GPS collars, chasing a mountain lion into a tree, and then shooting it from below, maybe even with a crossbow. That's not fair chase, and that doesn't feel ethical to me. Talk about
2: what you hope will be on the ballot in 2024.
4: So what we hope will be on the ballot in 2024 is the opportunity for voters to right this kind of historic wrong that's been happening in the state with our cats and how cats are managed in Colorado. What it does is it effectively bans the trophy hunting of mountain lions and bobcats and bans the trapping of bobcats. And then we also included links just because lynx can be a bycatch of trapping. And we've seen what's happened with other animals that are listed as endangered species as soon as they're downlisted. Different groups, these hunting interests that we talk about, will move to try to hunt them or trap them. So we think that that's a good catch to have in there. It does exempt public safety, so you could still feasibly have a mountain lion killed if it's threatening your livestock or threatening your pet or has attacked a child, um, that still all stands as it was. But mm-hmm. what it does do is it says you cannot trophy hunt, and that's it, period, and you cannot trap. And those are the two cruel and humane things that we really want to make sure that we're addressing
0: through this ballot measure. KDMK's Amy Hebden-Marsh speaking with Samantha Brugger, the campaign manager for CATS. That stands for Cats Aren't Trophies. We also heard from Julie Marshall of Animal Wellness Action, one of the groups involved in the campaign. listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to Sam Fuqua at KGNU, Laura Palmasano at KVNF, Emily Arnson at KZMU and Amy Hatton marsh at KDNK for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening.